Who is Jesus? What is his mission? We're following Jesus through the pages of Mark's gospel. Every step of the way, we're discovering his authority and power. As the story moves forward and the crowds increase, so does the opposition. Will the message and ministry of Jesus be thwarted, or will God's kingdom continue to grow? Let's pick up where we left off in the story. Hello everyone, I'm Sarah. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and I'm so glad that you've joined us today as we continue to study the Gospel of Mark. We're gonna pick up the story in chapter five, so go ahead and take a moment to find your Bible or a device while I do a quick review of where we've been. So we're far enough into Jesus' ministry that the word is out. He's been preaching and teaching and doing incredible signs and wonders all over the region of Galilee. We've read about him casting out demons. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He's cleansing lepers. He's restoring paralyzed men to their feet. He healed a man with, who had a withered hand. And most recently, we see that Jesus has even gone to the other side of the lake to those people over there who aren't even Israelites. On the way there, Jesus calmed a storm, and while he was there, he rescued a man from demonic oppression by casting the demons into a herd of pigs. Now, that former demoniac, well, he's an ordinary hero spreading the word about Jesus in his hometown. And Jesus and the disciples, they're back on their home turf, their feet solidly on the ground in Galilee. Mark 5, 21 tells us that when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Now, nobody in the crowd quite knows who he is, but they're all excited by the possibility that they might see a miracle. Some are even cautiously optimistic that he might be the Messiah they've been waiting for. Now, for his disciples, they never know what a day with Jesus is going to look like. For Jesus, Every single day is an opportunity for God's kingdom to continue breaking into the ordinary and broken and lowly with the good news of a story that's nearing its climax. Because, well, Jesus, he is all the promises of God come true. He's the fulfillment and climax and beginning and end of God's story of life and hope and forgiveness and salvation. And today, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 34. Before we jump in, let's go ahead and establish some context for today's story. First, in the context of Mark's themes, we learn more today about Jesus as the Son of God, Son of Man. Our passage is going to tell us two stories about Jesus' power. He's got the power to heal the physical body, and he's got power over death. But these are actually more than stories of, of physical healing. Set in the context of Mark's focus on the kingdom of God, breaking into history through the Son of God come as the Son of Man, these are two stories of Christ's power to move our perspective from fear to faith. I mean, there's all kinds of fear in our stories, from the crowd's FOMO, that's the fear of missing out, to the fear of a public shame, there's a fear of living, the fear of failure, the fear of death. In every instance of fear, Jesus is going to lead people to faith. In fact, that's our big idea today. Jesus wants to lead us from fear to faith. Because he's the son of man, he's physically present, he understands every fear, but as the son of God, he overcomes. And we'll get to that later. The second context for today's story is literary. Our two stories are an example of a Markin sandwich. This means that one story is interrupted by another before it comes to its conclusion. So one story is the bread, I'll do this, the bread, and the other is the turkey or PB&J or tuna or BLT, whatever you like in the middle there. 
And now that you're hungry, just focus for a second. This is a writing technique that Mark uses several times in his gospel. We saw the first one in chapter three, when Jesus' interaction with his family is interrupted by religious leaders. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright describes it this way. The flavor of the outer story adds zest to the inner one, and the taste of the inner one is meant to in turn permeate the outer one, just like a tasty sandwich. So, son of God, son of man, and sandwich. That's the context for our stories today. So here's how we're gonna do this. I want us to go ahead and enter into this story and get on the scene as each character in the story, as their individual stories unfold. I want us to see and hear and feel the urgency and the pain and the confusion and the fear just as Jesus would have encountered it, just as he encounters you and I today. Because some of us are broken and hurting and we're fearful people too. And you need Jesus and I need Jesus. And so by immersing ourselves in their story, we're gonna discover that Jesus wants to lead all of us from our fear to faith. So we're gonna call this today a study in perspectives as we allow each character to come alive in the story. We're gonna meet our first character and gain our first perspective in Mark 5, starting in verse 22. It says, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Now let's break down the character profile for Jairus. He's a community leader. His 12 year old daughter is close to death and the urgent situation is leaving him desperate. So Jairus is a leader in the local synagogue. Scholars believe this is taking place in Capernaum, which is a small fishing town on the Sea of Galilee. So while Jairus has status, he's like a big fish in a little pond. He's not to be lumped in with the really religious elite like the Pharisees and scribes, but he is possibly concerned about all the attention being drawn to Capernaum by Jesus being there. I mean, Jesus has a reputation and he's controversial. So as a local leader, Jairus would be rightfully cautious of the hullabaloo until personal circumstances forced his hand. His daughter, who we later learn is 12 years old, is really sick. And maybe it came on suddenly, and maybe she's been slowly deteriorating, but she's at the point of death. The Greek word that's used here is only used this one time in the New Testament, and it means that this is her last grasp of life. At any moment, she's gonna take her final breath. Now, if you're a parent, it is no stretch of the imagination to put yourselves in Jairus' shoes and imagine all of the emotions. And if you're not a parent, you love someone and you can imagine too. His heart is being ripped out of his chest. And so with that in mind, read these words again. It says, seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Jairus is afraid. He's afraid his daughter will die and that makes him desperate. Jairus isn't 100% certain who Jesus really is, but he's heard enough to believe that Jesus is his daughter's final hope and he has no other plan than to find him and beg him to come. And so with the whole crowd watching, Jairus forgoes his caution and his pride and any fear of the loss of his own dignity just throws himself at Jesus' feet with desperation in his voice. And I'm sure tears on his face. I can just imagine the moment as he's down on his face and he holds his breath, just waiting for Jesus to respond. Mark doesn't tell us if Jesus said anything. It just says, and he went 
with him. Jesus turns to walk toward the house, toward the beloved daughter. It's the first step in leading Jairus from his fear to faith. And as Jairus climbs to his feet, his perspective is it's still one of great urgency, but the fear is being pushed back by hope because Jesus is coming. Now, we're used to reading the, that the miracle happens next, like the paralyzed man, remember, who got lowered through the roof. Jesus says, get up and walk. Or in the middle of a raging storm, the disciples wake Jesus up and he says, peace be still, and it stops. But not in this story. This story is interrupted. And the next words that we read are that a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And so this actually brings us to the next perspective in the story, and that's the perspective of the disciples. So take a look at their character profile. They're followers of a rabbi named Jesus, and they've been witness to his ministry all over Galilee. And right now, right now they're in crowd control mode because they don't want Jesus' mission to save this little girl to fail. I mean, it could have been as many as two years since these disciples have been following Jesus. And in that time, well, they have seen some stuff and they recognize that this mission is urgent. Jesus needs to get to Jairus' house ASAP. But the crowds are thick and noisy. And while they can never be quite sure what Jesus is going to do, they've seen him in action like this before. So they're going to do whatever they can to support this mission. The Jesus Storybook Bible paints the scene of this story in this way. Everyone was in the way, hustling and bustling and jostling and pressing, pushing and shoving, squishing and squashing. The disciples ran ahead, forcing back the crowd. I mean, I picture them like the security entourage for Prince William and Princess Kate, or our American version, Taylor and Travis. They're moving ahead of Jesus and Jairus, and they're saying, make some room, let the teacher through, a girl's dying, you'll have to wait your turn. They are focused on the destination, and there is no time for detours or delay. And this is what makes the next part of the story feel so jarring for us as readers and for everyone who would have been involved that day. Look at verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And she came up behind Jesus in the crowd and touched his garments. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. Now, before we talk about the woman, consider the disciples' perspective. They were focused. They were in lockstep with Jesus and Jairus and the urgency of that situation. And then suddenly, Jesus stops. What is going on? What is he doing? What is he saying? I mean, the disciples, I can imagine looking at one another in confusion and at Jesus like he's lost his marbles. Of course, someone touched him. Everyone is touching him. Like, Jesus, ain't nobody got time for this. We need to hurry. A life is on the line. Let's go. But strangely, Jesus isn't flustered by the interruption or their impatience. Jesus doesn't appear to be at all concerned that they might be too late for the little girl. Instead, Jesus is carefully scanning the crowd because someone has mustered the last of her hope and her remaining strength to reach him. Look at the encounter again. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. 
She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. The shock of this story cannot be overemphasized. The bleeding woman was a social pariah. She wasn't just sick, she was an outcast. Take a look at her character profile. She was perpetually unclean because of her illness. For 12 years, she had had to live apart from everyone, family, friends. This has left her isolated and desperate. And forgive me, this is gonna make some of you uncomfortable, especially maybe you men. Mark, well, he made sure that her story was written down, and I wanna make sure that more than half of us try to grasp her suffering. What's implied here is that she doesn't have a normal menstrual cycle. She doesn't have a normal flow of blood. And so according to the law, all women are made unclean for a period of time every month. Okay, I think we can get that. This is part of the curse. Every single woman in history gets this. It's part of who we are, and I'm quite certain all of us don't want it anymore. But for her, for this woman, her bleeding never stopped. Her uterus was constantly shedding cells, not once a month, but all month for years. And remember too that the uterus is a muscle, which means it cramps when it bleeds. Have you ever had a muscle cramp? Maybe a charley horse in the middle of the night or a back spasm. Every woman experiences some level of discomfort when this happens every month. For me, it was always painful, often severe enough that I couldn't sleep or drive or think or do anything except breathe and hope that it would end, which it always did. No matter how intense, within hours the pain would subside to a dull ache. Aided by luxuries like modern medicine, hot baths, heating pads, and eventually a hysterectomy that brought me complete relief. But there is none of that for this woman. There is no relief. I can't imagine how all-consuming this would have been. She was exhausted in every way. The loss of blood would leave her listless, listless and lacking physical energy, but anyone who faces chronic illness knows that the physical is only one facet of suffering the emotional and mental exhaustion would have left her a shell of her old self. Not to mention that she'd spent all of her meager savings on quack doctors who didn't help her at all. She's desperate to end the suffering. And when she hears that Jesus is in town, she wonders, maybe he might be the magic bullet, the one thing that she hasn't tried yet. Because she's not sure how much longer she can live like this. She's almost afraid to live more than she is to die. But with a surge of desperate hope, she struggles to push through the crowd, knowing that everyone that she touches is gonna to be left stained and unclean because she's impure. But she just needs to get close enough to try, and then she'll slip away, get in, get out, and hopefully no one will notice. She's hopeful, but after so, much, so many dead ends, how high could her hopes have been? So imagine her shock when she experiences a physical change within her body. Suddenly, in an instant, there's release. There's a pause in the pain, a sense of wholeness. So many prayers answered. She can feel it. She knows she is healed. I imagine her feet stuck to the ground and time standing still while she marvels at what she can't see from the outside but instinctively feels on the inside. 
that she hears Jesus speak and her awe shifts to panic because she's been caught and she shouldn't have pushed through that cloud with her and cleaned this. She knows this and now everybody's going to turn and everybody's going to see her and it's a small town. They know who she is. And so the crowd suddenly backs away with a gasp. They don't even have to point. She's left in the middle of everyone all by herself and her eyes turn to Jesus and she falls to her face in fear. She is about to be publicly shamed. She knows it. I'm so sorry. I know it was wrong for me to come here, but I just couldn't do it anymore. I had no one else. I'm so sorry. In a matter of moments, she's gone from panic and pain to relief and then panic and from desperation to hope and back to fear. But Jesus hasn't come to shame her. And he's not just here for her physical healing. He's here to draw out her faith. If you've ever experienced the tenderness of Jesus in your weakest moments, in your fearful moments, in your guilty moments, then you know how precious his words are. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. Daughter, one word wrapping her in love and belonging and acceptance and drawing her in after more than a decade of being pushed out. She may have come to him with just a sliver of desperate faith, but it was enough. And the power of God didn't do a partial healing. The NIV says, go in peace and be freed. She leaves that place free from bondage and full of peace. This is the Hebrew concept of shalom. To be in shalom is to be completely whole, not just body, but mind and heart and soul. And imagine the amazement of the crowd as she turns toward her future, completely restored. Because Jesus is the son of God, he's got the power to heal her body and the power to overcome her fear and the power to give her an abundant life. And meanwhile, the disciples, remember, this is, this is a sandwich story. And so the disciples are amazed, but they're also shocked. Perhaps they, they sense what we know, that in an emergency room situation, it would be malpractice to ignore or delay the treatment of a patient with an acute, urgent, life-threatening condition, like the little girl, in order to treat someone with a chronic condition, like the woman. More than that, in their culture, a chronically sick woman was to be pitied, but Let's face it, um, she's a secondary citizen, not that important, but Jairus, Jairus is more important than probably anyone else in the crowd that day. So, hey, Jesus, if you're done, we need to get moving. And so we return to the bread of this sandwich story. And it says, while Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who had said, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? <laughs> Imagine Jairus. I mean, he have, may have missed the entire interaction with the bleeding woman. He may have just been in shock that Jesus had stopped and feeling hope slip away. Some consciously aware that something exciting was happening, but what he sees through the crowd from a distance is people he recognizes, people he knows are running toward him from the direction of his home. And in his heart, he's saying, no, 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 not dead, please no. I mean, I imagine that the world around him just ceased to exist and he can't hear the crowd. He can't see anything and his heart's just stopped and he's struggling to breathe. And the disciples look on in shock and horror. She's dead. Did Jesus just mess up in his recklessness with this woman? Did he fail to save the girl? But once again, Jesus isn't flustered by the news. He's not afraid of being too late for the little girl. Jesus knows that little girl is waiting for him. 
and he knows there's a story to be told. Let's pick it up in verse 36. It says, Overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. At this point, Jesus breaks away from the crowd, taking just a few disciples with him. Unlike Jairus and the woman who needed their small faith that they kept private to be drawn out by a public display of fear and desperation, this little girl needs to receive Jesus in the quiet of her room. How kind, how sweet it is that Jesus knows exactly what each one of us needs to move us out of our fear and into faith. Now, when they arrive at the house, Jesus is unfazed by the laughter of those who are to, paid to mourn the girl's death. And I, I can just envision Jairus grabbing his wife by the hands and, and not able to form words, but just the hope, the desperate hope in their eyes as they lead Jesus up to her room. And it says, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. <laughs> so from feverish dreams and the darkness of death, Jesus quietly calls the little girl to life. He's waking her up with loving words and kind eyes and gentle hands because she too is a precious daughter. She is loved and cherished by her daddy, her heavenly father, and her creator. I love how Mark uses the word immediately twice in one sentence. He says, immediately she is walking and immediately everyone in the room is overcome. It sounds about right. Imagine the joy that filled Jairus and his wife. Imagine the celebration that followed. Imagine the increase in their faith. Jairus needed to trust Jesus with his daughter's life so that he could learn to trust Jesus with his whole life. Who knows the impact he had as a faith leader in that town for years to come? Who knows who that little girl grew up to be? And no matter how many miracles they will be witness to, the disciples will never cease to be amazed by Jesus. And you and I should be the same because you and I, we're prone to doubt. You and I are prone to fear. You and I are prone to think that maybe Jesus is being reckless and crazy with our lives. But Jesus, if we follow him, will always lead us to faith. No matter what happens next, if we keep our eyes on him, he will lead us where we need to go. For a second, the disciples thought, they were the ones leading Jesus through the crowd to the situation that needed him. But the whole time, Jesus was leading them to new depths of belief and trust and faith. The disciples needed to learn that urgency cannot supplant their faith and fear cannot lead the charge. Sometimes slowing down and waiting on Jesus is the exact right thing. The future ministries of these disciples are going to be roller coasters of circumstances and urgencies and fears, and they're going to need to be savvy like Jesus while they follow his spirit. And this brings us to our final perspective. We've looked at these sandwich stories through the eyes of Jairus and the bleeding woman and the disciples, but what about Jesus? Jesus, he's on a mission. 
He is bringing the kingdom of God. He is restoring the broken story of God's people. As the son of man, who is also the son of God, he's doing this in ordinary and miraculous ways, not in a wide sweeping meeting of every single need, but in day by day, one-on-one ways with a man here and a woman there and a child over here. On his journey to the cross, the saving work that he's gonna do, he's pausing for people. He's drawing faith out of fear. For Jesus, every encounter provides the opportunity for God's kingdom to continue breaking into the ordinary and broken and lowly with the good news of a story that's nearing its climax. Remember, Jesus is all the promises of God come true. He's the fulfillment and climax and beginning and end of God's story of life and hope and forgiveness and salvation and eternity. And on that, on that single day in Capernaum, stories collided. The story of our Savior with the story of a girl who was born the same year that a woman began to suffer. And all three of them, Jesus, the woman, the little girl, all three destined to die. But on that day, death was arrested. A woman was healed and a little girl raised. He redeemed the narratives of two lost lives. It's a snapshot of God's redemptive plan for every life. But notice what he does. He tells the witnesses not to spread the little girl's story because it isn't time for everyone to know what Jesus knows, that he has a journey ahead, that his turn to die is coming. But for now, what happened in that little girl's room is just a preview of what comes next. And until then, until that day, his disciples need to continue to follow him until they face their deepest fears so he can pull them from fear to faith. Now, of the stories and the perspectives we looked at today, which perspective do you most strongly resonate with? Like the disciples, are are you in a hurry for Jesus to move along and get on with his work and you're tempted to lead him and to put him on your timetable? Or are you like Jairus and there's a circumstance in your life that has you desperate for a Hail Mary, an 11th hour miracle, but you're also proud of your own self-sufficiency and you're unsure you can lay down your pride and fall at the feet of Jesus and beg, like really beg him to meet you? Or are you like the bleeding woman? You know exactly how desperate you are and you're just trying to come quietly because if it doesn't work out, you'll just slip away. You have enough faith to try, but you're afraid you won't be seen, afraid that you'll never belong. Every one of us here today, we're either broken by our own need or we're broken by the need in the life of someone that we love. And the Father's heart, it breaks with all of yours. So hear him calling you, he's saying, daughter, son, Know that his work, it didn't end on this day in Capernaum because he still has the power to heal and he still has the power to raise a life. He still has the power to bring peace and wholeness to the most shattered life and soul. So what are you afraid of? Are you afraid that you will never be, that you will never be too unclean, too dead, too busy, too impatient, too self-important, too guilty, or too lost for Jesus? I invite you to let the presence of Jesus bring a new perspective Mixed with your fear and your doubt, faith moves you toward him rather than away. Faith keeps you following him through the crowd. Faith reminds you that in your brokenness, he holds all things together. And Jesus wants to lead you and me from fear to faith. I want to challenge all of us to cry out like another father in another desperate circumstance that we'll read about in Mark. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. As a next step today, when you find your chair this week, get quiet and honest. Ask yourself the Son of God, Son of Man discipleship question. How does this picture of Jesus compel me to live differently? 
And then I want you to ask, how is Jesus changing my perspective? How is he moving me from fear to faith? You can trust him. He hears your prayers when you ask him questions.